0: This episode deals with a crime committed against a child. Please exercise self-care when choosing to listen. By May 1941, the United Kingdom had been at war with Nazi Germany for over 18 months, and the situation was looking precarious. The Battle of Britain was just coming to an end, with the RAF and other Allied pilots having narrowly staved off the German air offensive. Hitler's plan to invade Great Britain had been thwarted, for now. The country was increasingly cut off, as cargo ships were forced to play a nerve-wracking game of cat and mouse with German U-boats as they looked to bring food and supplies from across the Atlantic. On the home front, things were also tough, due to strict food rationing and the constant threat of enemy bombing raids. The town of Swansea in south-west Wales was heavily bombed in February 1941. Over 200 people were killed and more than 400 injured over the course of just a few nights. This was the context in which the following events took place. When three-and-a-half-year-old Justina Macari awoke on the morning of Saturday 17th of May 1941 It was the first warm, sunny day Swansea had experienced in a very long time. For what felt like months, south-west Wales had been besieged by overcast skies and continuous rain. Justina, who was known by friends and family as Christina, gobbled down her breakfast of fried egg, bread and warm tea. At 9.30am, she rushed outside, to play with some other local children in the street. Modern parents may be shocked to hear of a girl so young heading out to play on her own. This was a very different time when considering parenting norms. Christina was known to frequently roam around the local streets, playing with other children. She would even hop on buses unaccompanied for a stop or two. This was something she loved to do. Christina did seem older than her three years. Numerous contemporary reports in the Western Mail make note of her above average size and height. She was said to be more like a five-year-old in appearance and manner. She was confident and friendly with adults and would often talk to customers who came into her father Eugenio's fish and chip shop. The family had moved to Swansea to take over the business a couple of months previously. The premises were situated on Dillwyn Street, and the family lived in the accommodation above the restaurant. That morning, Christina played outside for a few hours before returning home to check on her mother, who was feeling under the weather and resting in bed. Christina didn't stay very long, and her father Eugenio saw her leave the house at 12:30 p.m. The little girl was wearing a white vest. Blue knickers, white bodice, a pink artificial silk petticoat, a blue frock, green jumper, and white pinafore. On her feet she wore green ankle socks and black shoes. At twelve fifty PM, a fifteen year old girl named Eileen, who worked in the Macari's fish and ship shop, left her home in Townhill Swansea to walk to work. She was accompanied on this journey by her 13-year-old brother. As the pair walked through the Mount Pleasant area of the town, they bumped into Christina Macari. Mount Pleasant is a 15-minute walk from Dilwyn Street. The teenagers obviously knew Christina from the shop, and Eileen went to speak with the little girl, but she just laughed and ran away. Eileen noticed that Christina went over to a man, who was standing a little distance away and the two of them started to walk up the steep road together. Eileen didn't know the man, but assumed it was a relative of Christina. Eileen and her brother continued on their way. She looked back once and saw that Christina and the man were still walking together up the hill. Eileen did some shopping and finally arrived at the Macari's fish and chip shop at 2.10pm. On meeting Eugenio, Aline told him about seeing Christina with a man. Straight away, Eugenio knew that something wasn't right and asked Aline to go out and find his daughter. Worried and unable to rest, Eugenio also went out to search. After looking around the Mount Pleasant area and seeing no sign of Christina or the man, at 2.45pm, Eugenio contacted the police to report his daughter missing. The police came out in force, and looked all over the town, but by nightfall, Christina could not be found. it's John here. Just a very quick message to say if you'd like to you can now become a supporter of the podcast. I strive to make the podcast as best as it can be which entails a lot of research and writing. Your support will help me to access things like newspaper archives and ensure lesser known cases are aired. Anyway follow the link in the show notes if you'd like to. In newspaper reports from 1941 about this case, Justina's name was spelt many different ways. Author Jeff Brooks, who wrote a book about Swansea murders in 2013, spells it G U I S T I N A. Traditional spellings of the Italian name Justina spell it G I U S T I N A. As you have heard, Justina most often went by Christina, and her friends and family used this name most often. Justina Benedetta Macari, known as Christina, was born in County Antrim, Northern Ireland, on the 22nd of November, 1937. A description of Christina in the Western Mail on May 19, 1941, says the little girl was well built, with bobbed dark brown hair, brown eyes and a full face. Her father Eugenio was born in Falkirk, Scotland and had Italian heritage. When Christina went missing, she had a two-year-old brother and infant twin siblings, a girl and a boy. I believe that her parents had at least one of the daughter in later years. Christina's mother's name was Maria. The family moved to Swansea in south-west Wales to take over a fish-and-chip restaurant. Documents I have read suggest that the Macaris had not been running the restaurant very long before their daughter went missing. Christina seems like she was quite a character. His presence would bring a smile, to everyone she met. Bliner Mice Farm in Forest Vach is five and a half kilometres north of the Makari's home. On the weekend of 17th to 18th of May 1941, a 13 year old boy was staying at the farm with his aunt. Around lunchtime on Sunday, the 18th of May, he and a friend went out to play in a rhododendron plantation just 150 metres from the farmhouse. The friends were out looking for glass bottles. The location was a well-known haunt of courting couples, and empty wine and beer bottles were often discarded there. The boys were hoping to find some bottles to take to a shop and exchange for a few coins. They decided to split up to cover more ground. The friend went to check out a stream while the 13-year-old nephew of the farm owner went further into the undergrowth of the plantation. As he was scrambling about in the bushes, he came upon the body of Christina Macari. She was lying face down. He didn't touch her, but ran to get his friend. He showed in the body, and they both hurried back to the farm. The call was made to police at 2.15pm and they arrived, including members of Swansea CID, just after three o'clock. Investigators found the body laying with its head towards the road and farmhouse, and feet pointing towards the small stream. It was on its left side, with the right arm bent, and left arm trapped under the body. The left side of the face was against the ground, and covered by undergrowth. The body was clothed, apart from the right shoe, which was suspended in a nearby branch, about half a metre off the ground. On closer inspection, police made the grim discovery that the girl's knickers had been pulled down to the knees and had been ripped apart. The following day, a post-mortem was carried out by Home Office pathologist Dr. Webster. Dr. Harrison of the Cardiff City Police Forensic Department and Swansea Police Surgeon, Dr. Vivian Davis, were also present. It was determined that Christina had died from asphyxia. She had been smothered by something being pressed down on her face while she was on her back, or her face had been pressed into something. There were no scratch marks on her face, which led investigators to conclude she had not been killed in the rhododendron plantation where she was found. Time of death was estimated to have been 7pm on Saturday 17th of May, though it could have been earlier. The only mark on her body was a slight bruise near her left hip. Please be aware that this next sentence deals with the sexual assault. I've kept details to a minimum but have included these facts as they are pertinent in light of a potential suspect. Please skip forward 10 seconds or so if you prefer. It was also confirmed that Christina had been sexually assaulted, though she had not been penetrated with a penis, more likely a finger. Examination of the stomach contents indicated that Christina had eaten something after her breakfast, Traces of chocolate and ice cream, or possibly chocolate ice cream, were found. Most odd was the discovery of a fair amount of plain paper within the stomach. The largest single piece measured three centimetres. Police thought this may be the remnants of a paper bag used to hold sweets. Christina had eaten these things approximately two hours before she died. Detective Inspector E. Jones of Swansea CID led the investigation and within a day or so found several witnesses who had seen a girl matching Christina's description in the company of a man on the afternoon of Saturday, 17th of May. The first was a 45 year old bootmaker who saw a man and small girl walking up Mount Pleasant Road. This is a particularly steep hill. And the girl was lagging some way behind the man. Occasionally, she would run and catch up with him, but she would soon be out of breath and fall behind. He noted that the man did not try and help the girl in any way. The bootmaker felt like saying something to the man, but he didn’t, and overtook them without addressing him. The bootmaker described the man as 40 to 45, 5 foot 10 or 178 centimetres with a slight build he appeared to have a stoop and he swung his arms while walking he wore a dark cap which covered dark hair that was long at the back he wore something white around his neck which could have been a large shirt collar and a green lounge suit that looked like it needed washing on top of this he had a jacket that was too small for him the bootmaker noticed that the man wore black shoes that had been worn down considerably. The second witness was a farm labourer who was working in a field near Meneth Neweth Road in Forest Fach. This is under one kilometre from the location where Christina's body was found. While hard at work, the labourer paused for a moment and looked up to see a man on the other side of the hedge carrying a child. The man looked like he was deciding in which direction to walk. His choices were towards Penplas Farm, or towards Mullith Newith Colliery. The farm labourer couldn't be sure what time this was, as he wasn't wearing a watch, but he estimated it to be around 3 to 3.30pm. He described the man he'd seen as between 35 and 40, foot 7 or 8, 170 to 174 centimetres, with a good build. I'm not quite sure what this means. He had dark hair and was clean-shaven, with a dark complexion and full face. He wore a dark suit with a grey cap and a muffler or neck warmer. The labourer said he thought he looked like a seaman. The third witness was a farm bailiff, was riding one horse and leading another a short distance from Penplas Farm to Kyarithin. At a spot just 70 metres from the farm labourers' sighting, the bailiff saw a man and child walking beside a road. The child was about five metres behind the man. The man noticed the farm bailiff and at that point turned and spoke to the child. The pair then carried on walking in the direction of the farm bailiff. Just then, a lorry passed along the road and spooked the farm bailiff's horse. By the time he settled the horse, he looked up to see the man and child had passed him and were walking along a grass verge in the direction of Penplas farm. The farm bailiff could not be sure of the time as he too was not wearing a watch. The farm bailiff described the man as between 35 and 40, and 5ft 7, or 170 centimetres, with a medium build. He had dark hair, which was long at the side. He had a pasty, sallow complexion, and wore a dark suit with a brown cap. He wore a white muffler around his neck. On May 20th, Swansea CID showed the farm bailiff 21 photos and asked if the man he had seen with the child was among them. He pointed out one image. The person he identified was a man well known to police. He is described in contemporary reports as, quote, a tramp, by which they meant he was a person with no fixed abode. The man would move about throughout South Wales, often travelling with his wife. The man had twice previously been charged with murder, in 1928 and again in 1932. In the latter case, he was found guilty of manslaughter and spent several years in prison. The police searched for this man and swiftly found him in the town of Carmarthen, 50 kilometres west of Swansea. The man was questioned about his movements over the previous weekend and said he had been in the town of Clanethley all day on Saturday until six PM. Clanethley is about twenty kilometers from Swansea. The police organised an ID parade, and the farm bailiff picked the man out of the lineup. The man, who was now a fully fledged suspect, was taken to Swansea, where the farm labourer also identified him as the man he had seen in Forest Vac with the girl. The bootmaker, who had seen a man with a little girl in Mount Pleasant, was also brought in to give his opinion. He did not pick the suspect as the person he had seen. Eileen's 13-year-old brother also did not identify the suspect as the person he had seen with Christina on Saturday lunchtime. Eileen herself did not attend the ID parade. So two witnesses had identified this homeless man, but two had not. The police extended their inquiries into Llanethli to see if anyone could corroborate the homeless man's claim that he had been in the town on Saturday afternoon. A man living at Llanethli Public Assistance Institution came forward as a witness. Public assistance institutions were what used to be called workhouses. They were centres run by the state which provided accommodation for the homeless and poverty-stricken disabled and older people. The witness said that on the afternoon of Saturday May 17th, he was out walking in Llanethli when he saw the homeless man and his wife. He knew the homeless man by sight. The witness saw the couple again shortly afterwards. This was in the middle of the afternoon, at about the same time the farm labourer and farm bailiff seen the man and girl in Forest Vach. When the witness went back to his accommodation he mentioned to the warden that he had seen the homeless man and his wife. Investigators were convinced by the witness and concluded that the homeless man could not have been the man who had been with Christina. He was released from custody and dismissed as a suspect. Having drawn a blank and with the pressure mounting Swansea CID called Scotland Yard for assistance. Chief Inspector G. Hatterell and Detective Sergeant Tansill arrived from London and immediately extended the search for the culprit. Enquiries were now reaching across the whole of Wales and across the border into the West Country. They initiated a widespread appeal for witnesses through cinemas, theatres, and churches. This strategy paid off, as more people came forward with information. A 42-year-old greengrocer said on Saturday May 17th he had left his stall at 1.50pm to return home to Mount Pleasant for lunch. As it was a nice day, the man spent some of his lunch break in his front garden, taking a look at the onions he was growing. The grocer said he happened to glance across the road, and noticed a man sitting on a bench. He then saw the man stand up and back in a small girl who had just come out of a sweet shop and was crossing the road. The girl got to the curb and the man sat back down. The witness was then distracted by sorting out things in his garden. When he next looked across the road, the man and the little girl had gone. The greengrocer described the man was in his early 40s, standing at five foot seven, or 170 centimeters, with a medium build. He had a long, clean-shaven face with a prominent square chin and sallow complexion. He wore a navy suit with a grey cap, underneath which his hair protruded at the back and sides. A white collar or muffler was fastened around his neck. He described the man is looking working class. A 60-year-old woman who was walking down Dillwyn Street at 12.40pm on Saturday 17th of May saw a little girl and boy playing with some sand outside the property next to the Macari's fish and chip shop. The woman thought the little girl had a really distinct voice. She noticed a man was standing nearby and it looked like he may have been interacting with the playing children in some way. The girl then ran inside the fish and chip shop, and the man left and headed to the set of traffic lights at the junction of Dillwyn and Oxford streets. Fifteen to twenty minutes later, the sixty-year-old woman was outside Lovell's Café in the adjacent St. Helens Road, when she heard the girl's unique voice, she looked up to see the child with the man she had noticed before. They were walking together down the road, in the direction of the YMCA. The girl carried sweets or toffees in her hand, and the man was talking to her. He took her other hand, and they disappeared into a crowd of people out shopping. The woman described the man as 30 to 35, 5 foot 6 to 5 foot 7, or 167 to 170 centimetres, with long dark hair. He had a pale complexion and looked like he could do with a wash. He wore an ill-fitting jacket. When he walked, he had a stoop and swung his arms. Particular effort was made by Chief Inspector Hatterill and DS Tansill to quiz local sweet shop owners, to see if they recalled a man and girl visiting their establishments on the afternoon of May 17th. A 31-year-old woman shop assistant who worked at a confectioner's in Camarthen Road remembered a man coming in to buy chocolate between 2.30 and 3.45pm. The shop was out of chocolate, so he asked for two chocolate macaroons instead. These were a chewy kind of biscuit made from shredded coconut and drizzled in chocolate. The shop assistant explained that due to rationing, she could only sell one per customer. The man explained they were for a child and the shop assistant relented and sold him two. The shop assistant described the man as between 40 and 45 and 5 foot 8 to 9 or 172 to 175 centimetres with a slight build and narrow face. As she was relatively close to the man, she recalled him in some detail. He had a long pointed nose, with a lined dirty face. He had an overall sallow complexion, and his mouth sagged a little. He wore a dark overcoat, and a white collar shirt with a tie. Around his neck, he had a white muffler. On his head, he wore a grey trilby hat. The final witness was a 65-year-old man who worked as a fire spotter at the Meneth Neweth Colliery. This was under one kilometre from where Christina's body was discovered. On the evening of May 17th, he was walking to work from his home in Treboith to start the night shift. At 9.30pm, as he passed Penplas Farm, Near the location where the farm laborer and farm bailiff had reported sightings, he saw a man walk out from some woods on his left side and head in his direction. He noted the man was walking aimlessly and at a slow pace. When the man passed him, the witness said, "Nos star," good night in Welsh, but the man looked away and did not respond. The colliery worker described the man was 5 foot 8 or 172 centimeters with a medium build. His long hair, which was turning grey, was visible underneath a dark grey cap. He wore a dark overcoat and a white muffler. Across all the witness sightings of this man, there are some differences, but as you will have noticed, plenty of similarities, enough to believe they were all referring to the same person. Chief Inspector Hatterill and D.S. Tansill brought in men from the Swansea area who had previous convictions for sexual crimes against children or young women. Standard practice in a case like this. One man they talked with had a resemblance to the descriptions given by the many witnesses. The man was 46 years old and had 18 previous convictions, including two indecent assaults. These had occurred in 1912 and 1913, when the man was still a teenager. In 1912, he had assaulted a married woman. The following year, he attacked an 8-year-old girl while she was out picking blackberries. The girl's knickers were torn in a way similar to Christina's. The man was currently living with his wife in rented rooms on Nickel Street, Swansea, and had previously lived in Argyle Street, Swansea. The man had married in 1937, and had been living in Swansea for four years. Before that, he had lived in Cardiff, Newport and Cheltenham. As a young man, he went to fight in France in 1914, but was declared unfit shortly after signing up. Not long afterwards, he joined the army again, this time serving with the Monnetshire Regiment until 1919. During his time fighting in the trenches, he sustained a bad knee injury. This piece of information would have obviously piqued the interest of investigators, as some of the witnesses suggested the man they saw had a stoop. The man had worked sporadically, over the period since the war and had relied on public assistance payments. He had started a new job with the Postal Service on May 19th, the day after Christina's body was found, but was dismissed when police brought him in for questioning and his employers learnt about his previous convictions. He was interviewed by detectives on May 31st, 1941. At this point, I don't think the police mentioned anything about Christina, but asked him some general questions about his whereabouts on Saturday 17th of May. After talking with the man for a short time, police officers left him in a corridor and attended to go and consult with each other. When they came back, the man was nowhere to be seen. Officers went straight to his house, but he was not there. His hat, however was hanging on a peg in the hall, which proved that he had been back to the house, but had since fled. Several police officers went looking for him, and one stayed to watch the house to see if he would return. A while later, the man did return, and the police officer went to the door shortly afterwards, only to be told by his wife that her husband was out. They searched the property, including the air raid shelter in the garden, but could not locate him. Shortly afterwards, a policeman spotted the man hiding behind a neighbour's wall. The man was brought into the police station to answer more questions. Detectives also took a newly washed blue lounge suit found in the man's kitchen as evidence. Neighbours told police they had seen the man hanging the suit on his washing line, When he realised he was being watched by them, he hurriedly took down the clothes and went inside. The man gave an official statement concerning his version of events on the day Christina went missing. He said he woke up at 7am and had breakfast. His wife left for work just before 8.25am. She worked as a cleaner at a local doctor's surgery. A little later, he left to do some shopping. Specifically, he went to buy potatoes and cabbage. He wore a brown suit and brown hat with a shirt and tie. He returned home at 9.45am, though he quickly left the house again, this time to visit the library and then the butchers to buy some beef. He then bought some cigarettes and at 11am, went to Woolworth's to get sweets and biscuits. They had none left, so he went to the market in Singleton Street, where he bought some sweets similar to pear drops. He went to British Home Stores on Oxford Street, but they too were out of biscuits. He then walked home, passing through Dillwyn Street, the street where Christina lived. He claimed he arrived home shortly before midday, and his wife came back from work half an hour later. He then left the house yet again, this time in search of sausages, which he bought at a different butcher to the one he had been to earlier that morning. At 12.40pm, he got home and had his lunch. At home, he changed into his blue suit, which he said he did not wear outside the house that day he put on the radio at 1pm and listened until about 2pm when he fell asleep on the sofa. At 4pm he woke up and listened to the England v Scotland football match on the radio. At 5pm his wife cooked the tea after which he and his wife went out to look at rental property adverts in St Helens and Brimwall Road. As they were heading out of the house the couple talked briefly to the young woman who lived next door about her pet cat. They were home by 8.10pm when they listened to the music hall programme on the radio before retiring to bed at 11pm. Shortly before bed, he claimed they both ate some sweets he had bought earlier in the day. He claimed he had never been to Forest Fack. He admitted that over the past four years, He had sporadically worked as a seasonal postal worker, but said he had never delivered letters to that area. In his statement, he also said the only scarf he owned was blue and brown, but did say he owned a grey cap. He admitted getting his hair cut the day before he was interviewed by police, and said before that it had been about 10 weeks since it had last been cut. He also said he had been to the Macari's fish and chip shop in the past, before adding that he had been in during the second week the new owner, Eugenio Macari, had taken over. This was two months previously. The man's wife also gave a statement, but it seemed to contradict some of the details given by her husband. She said her husband was in when she got home from work and was wearing his blue suit. They had a lunch of potatoes, bread and a cup of tea. She made no mention of sausages. She also said that she had bought the beef on Saturday afternoon. Her husband had said he had got it on Saturday morning. She also could not recall eating sweets that day, or even her husband buying sweets for months. In the police notes about the case, they note that the woman had a cleft palate and was difficult to understand. The woman was also noted to be illiterate, and in a very offensive and derogatory way, added, quote, she was low-grade mentally. Police began to check out the man's story, and found a few things that did not tally. Neither of the butchers remembered the man coming into their shops on Saturday. One of them did say he came in a few days later, and asked them if they remembered him buying sausages on Saturday lunchtime. The young woman, who lived next door, also denied talking with the man and his wife on Saturday evening. She said she had only talked to the man once, and that was over a week before. Quite astonishingly, the police even discovered that the man had visited Christina's father, Eugenio, on the evening of May 31st, after being first spoken to by police. He spoke to Eugenio, and said he had just been questioned, about what had happened to his daughter, but told them he had nothing to do with it. This man certainly raised a lot of red flags. However, he was abruptly dropped as a suspect, when the 15 year old girl Eileen, who had seen Christina with the stranger in Mount Pleasant, failed to identify him, as the man she had seen. That was seemingly that. The man's clothes were returned to him, and he was free to go. Days later, the 60-year-old woman, who had seen a girl, believed to be Christina, with a man on Dillwyn Street, and again shortly after on St. Helens Road, came forward with further information. She said she had just spotted the same man again, out in the street. At first, police were not overly interested, as they already had a new suspect they were questioning. However, officers did go through the motions of showing the woman witness some suspect photos. In total, she was given 15 photographs to peruse, and she identified one definitely as the man she had seen. It was, of course, the suspect they had just released. The officer had included his photo in the collection, even though he had been ruled out. Even so, police were not convinced. Then, the witness also described a woman she had seen with the man that they instantly recognised to be the suspect's wife. It was at this point that police had a major breakthrough with the discovery Of yet another witness. News of this person came to officers working the case through the grapevine. The witness himself did not come forward, but had shared with some friends that he believed he had seen something important. The man was a first aid attendant at a factory, but had previously been a Swansea police officer. He had been drummed out of the force because of a drink problem. He was very bitter and felt he had been treated badly by the police, and was at first reluctant to help them with their inquiries. This attitude changed once he realised the significance of the information he had, and the wickedness of the crime that had been committed. On June 6, 1941, he went to the police and gave an official statement. The witness had frequented the Makari's fish and chip shop on a few occasions, and knew Christina by sight. At 3.35pm on the afternoon of Saturday May 17th, he was on the number 83 bus, when a man and child got on at the stop on the junction of Matthew Street and Camarthen Road. The witness recognised the girl, but couldn't pinpoint from where he knew her. It was only when he read about Christina's murder in the papers that it clicked who she was. He added that he recognised the man with her from around Swansea, but didn't know his name. He did not see the pair alight from the bus. In a description that is now very familiar, he said the man was about five foot six or one hundred sixty seven centimeters with a slight build. He estimated his chest to be thirty four inches. He had a thin face with a prominent nose high cheekbones and hollow cheeks he wore his hair over his ears he noticed the man's shoes had worn down and had been repaired with pieces of rubber the witness was shown several photos and pointed out the same person that the 60 year old woman had identified as being the man he had seen On June 7th, detectives brought the man into Swansea Central Police Station to ask him further questions. The man's house was searched, and several items of clothing were taken into evidence, including a blue suit, a blue and brown scarf, a white scarf, a cap, a brown overcoat, and a pair of black shoes. While detectives were at the house to collect the man, A person called in to speak with him about his unemployment benefit. He told her in front of the officers that he was under suspicion for Christina Macari's murder, but said he was, quote, practically innocent. The use of the word practically obviously pricked the ears of the police officers present. The man was questioned and made a second statement to police. In this one, he mentioned that he was unable to have sexual intercourse due to the injury he sustained in the Great War. He said his wife was not interested in sex and the pair had never had sexual contact. He said the last time he had been sexually active was before he was married. He went on to say that he had not worn his brown overcoat since before Christmas and now wore a blue overcoat instead. He admitted going to see Eugenio Macari after police had spoken to him the first time, but said he just wanted to pass on his condolences. He admitted going to the butchers to ask if they remembered him coming in on the Saturday. He said they told him it was impossible to say as they had so many customers. The man also admitted to having longish hair at the time Christina was murdered. Again, investigators proed further into the man's version of events. They quizzed staff at the Unemployment Benefit Office and they confirmed that they had seen him wearing a navy blue suit and a dirty fawn-coloured trilby. They had also seen him wearing a white muffler. The football game the man had claimed he'd listened to turned out to be a match between the British Army and Football Association Eleven the England v Scotland match had taken place several weeks earlier, on May 3rd. Though they were able to get the post office to confirm that the man had not worked in the Forest Vach area. Forensic examinations were carried out on the man's clothing. No soil or woodland debris from the scene were found. A solitary piece of animal dung was found on one of his boots, but this could not be definitively identified as coming from the fields in Forest Vach. However, on his brown overcoat, blue cotton fibres were found that matched the frock Christina had been wearing. White fibres were also found that may have come from the child's underwear. Brown hairs were discovered on the left shoulder and on the sleeve of the overcoat. They were a match for Christina Macari. This was decades before DNA testing, so police experts at the time could not be conclusive in their opinion. With so many witnesses, an ID parade was organised for June 27th, 1941. As police escorted the suspect to the location of the parade, he became violent and swore and made threats to the officers. He was led into a room and along with ten of the men, was placed in a line. He stood fourth on the right. Back then, witnesses were brought into the actual room and asked to look at the line of people and make their selection by placing a hand on one of their shoulders. There was no anonymity for witnesses or any protective screen between them and those in the parade. The first witness to enter was the 60-year-old woman. She picked the suspect straight away as the man she had seen with Christina. The woman left the room and the suspect was moved to a different position in the line. Next up was the bootmaker. He also picked out the same man and when he did so, the suspect swore angrily at him and tried to punch him. The suspect got very angry and yelled that he had been at home when the murder occurred. He continued to shout out threats against anyone who might dare to pick him out. This must have been incredibly intimidating for the witnesses, who no doubt could hear the commotion, and for the innocent men who were in the lineup with him. The greengrocer then entered and also picked out the suspect, who again attempted to hit his accuser he started to shout that his brother-in-law would come after the grocer. As the grocer was led away, the suspect even tried to run after him. It's quite unbelievable to imagine these scenes, and it must have been terrifying for those present. The 31-year-old woman who worked in the confectionery shop entered the room, and after studying the line of men, could not pick any of them as the man she had seen. Then came the ex-police officer who had seen Christina with a man on the number 83 bus. He picked out the suspect as the man he had seen. Yet again, the suspect tried to attack the witness, but was unable to make contact. He was then spoken to by his solicitor, but it made little difference and he continued to try and assault the witnesses. The farm labourer and farm bailiff and the fire spotter from the colliery were all brought in one at a time. None of these men were able to pick out anyone from the lineup. Fifteen year old Eileen, who worked at the Macari's fish and chip shop, and her thirteen year old brother, did not turn up to the ID parade. They were expected, but they had spent the night in an air raid shelter, and did not think they would be of any use anyway. So much time had passed they didn't think they would still recognise the man. Although there was disagreement amongst the witnesses, the police had seen enough to formally charge the man with Christina's murder. Following this, the man set about kicking over furniture and had to be restrained. His name, Thomas Williams, was printed soon after in press reports. The farm bailiff later said that he thought the person he had seen was Williams, but felt nervous about identifying him as he had picked out the wrong man last time. Both he and the farm labourer had picked the homeless man at the earlier lineup as the man they had seen with Christina. The inquest into Christina's death concluded at the end of July 1941 and determined that Thomas Williams, would stand trial for murder at Camarthen Assizes in November that year. The prosecution busied themselves building a case and the police put together a timeline of Thomas Williams' movements on the day Christina went missing. He met the girl in Dilwyn Street at 12.40pm, after which he walked her uphill through Mount Pleasant to Matthew Street where they got on the number 83 bus. Though no one could remember them getting off, it was deduced that they probably alighted at Ravenhill Middle Road Terminus at 3.48pm. The farm labourer and farm bailiff sightings on Mellith Road were approximately one kilometre away from the bus terminus. Police believe these sightings occurred at around 4pm. He then walked Christina past Penplus Farm, along a disused road, towards Bliner Mice. He then cut across the fields, towards the plantation. Police believed he murdered Christina in the field next to the wood. He then carried her into the trees, and likely threw her into the undergrowth. The trial went ahead in November 1941 presided over by Justice Lawrence. It did not go the way of the prosecution, with the jury given a verdict of not guilty. Despite several witnesses identifying Williams as the man they had seen with Christina, an equal number of witnesses did not. The prosecution could not disprove the fact that he claimed he had not been to Forest Fach before, Two people had reported seeing a man matching Williams' description in the area a couple of weeks before the murder, but again there was disagreement between the witnesses over the identification. Williams' wife backed up his alibi for the afternoon, although as we have seen, her vision of events contradicted her husband's in several aspects. This wasn't enough to prove Williams was lying the jury didn't even hear all the evidence. For example, the forensic evidence concerning the human hairs and pieces of blue and white cotton found on Williams' clothing was not aired in court. Halfway through the defence case, the judge asked the jury if they had heard enough to come to a verdict. They said they had, and Thomas Williams was acquitted and walked out of the court a free man. I have not been able to find out what happened to Thomas Williams or his wife after this. In 2013, author Jeff Brooks wrote a book, Swansea Murders 1770-1946. Part of the book is given over to the unsolved murder of Justina or Christina Macari. On his website, he has compiled a condensed retelling of the case. Near the end of the piece, Brooks includes some of the thoughts of the Swansea police following the acquittal of Thomas Williams. There is little doubt the police believed they had found the murderer, but he had evaded justice. The police were under the opinion that the jury wanted to convict Williams, but felt under pressure from the judge to acquit based on the arguments of the defence. Chillingly, the police concluded by saying that Williams had almost certainly now committed two murders, and they feared he would strike again. When I first read this, it sent shivers down my spine. I contacted the author, Jeff Brooks, to see if he knew which other murder the Swansea police were referring to. He kindly responded very swiftly, and said he did not and that he had not investigated this angle. This brought to the fore a thought I had when researching this episode. Could the case of Christina Macari be connected to another unsolved child murder I have previously covered on this podcast? In a bonus episode of the podcast I released in September 2021, I told the story... Of the murder of Joyce Cox. The four year old disappeared on her way home for lunch on September 28, 1939, in Whitchurch, Cardiff. Cardiff is 70 kilometres east of Swansea. Joyce's body was found on an embankment by a disused railway station 36 hours later and about one and a half kilometres from where she was last seen the murderer was never found. In 2015, Joyce's cousin, 73-year-old Terry Phillips, began to do some press interviews detailing information he had discovered when looking into Joyce's case. He was attempting to access the police notes that were held by the Metropolitan Police in London. Like with Christina Macari's murder, Scotland Yard had assisted the investigation and now held the files. Mr Phillips wrote to the Met Police asking for permission to see the files. They replied saying that a person is named in the notes as a suspect who is described in a derogatory manner and should not be linked with the murder. As it is an unsolved murder with potential for reinvestigation no matter how slim, the Metropolitan Police chose to invoke a special rule preventing anyone seeing the case notes for a hundred years, meaning they would be under wraps until 2040. This, they said, is to prevent information getting into the public sphere, which could lead to the suspect being identified. This suggested that at the time the person could still be alive, or if deceased, that his legacy and reputation would be unnecessarily sullied and harmed. It was also confirmed by police at this time that there had been two suspects in the case. In 2017, the South Wales Police held a cold case review of Joyce's unsolved murder and said that the main suspect died as long ago as the 1950s. Joyce's cousin Terry Phillips put forward a theory that an unnamed retired police officer may have been Joyce's killer. So, are the murders of Joyce Cox and Christina Macari connected? Reading the second statement given by Thomas Williams to Swansea Police, I am pretty confident that he was asked about Joyce's murder. In the statement, which I read on unsolvedmurders.co.uk, Williams stresses that he has never been to Whitchurch or worked there. This is where Joyce was murdered though he says he did know where it was and he knew Cardiff pretty well. He had already admitted that he had lived in Cardiff in the past. It seems a random fact to include in a statement concerning a murder in Swansea unless you have been asked a very specific question. Looking back over my script for the episode I did on Joyce Cox, I was stopped in my tracks when I read that one of the people police were looking to trace was a man with a slouch, seen in the area at the time. The man spotted with Christina Macari was said to have a stoop. Thomas Williams had an injury to his leg, which may have affected his posture and gait. There was also reports of a man offering sweets to small children in the weeks before Joyce was killed. This was a tactic used by the man who killed Christina. The pathology report showed that, like Christina, Joyce had also been given food by her murderer. I think there is a good chance the Swansea police believe Thomas Williams was responsible for the murder of Joyce Cox. I cannot say if Williams was considered a suspect by the Cardiff City Police. Due to his convictions for indecent assault and the fact he was charged with the murder of Christina Macari, I'm confident. He is not the name being withheld by the Met police in order to protect the person's reputation. I wouldn't share the name if I thought it was. Could Thomas Williams be the other suspect that South Wales police said died in the 1950s? It's impossible to say. The murder of Justina, or Christina Macari, is not well known, even in Wales. It is rarely mentioned in the lists of unsolved Welsh murders that circulate online. The tragedy happened over 80 years ago, but as I have read about the case, the loss of Christina's life and the sense of injustice still feels palpable. It really is heartbreaking. Christina is buried, along with other members of the Macari family, in a plot and Dana Craig Cemetery in the east of Swansea. The Macari family continued to run the chip shop in Dillwyn Street for many years.